Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The handwritten note was three scrawled lines on a sheet of white notebook paper. It said, This is tantamount to my insensitivity to people, especially women. I will admit the others when you catch me, if you can. Freeway Phantom. The note was found inside the pocket of the maroon-colored coat that had been draped over the deceased 18-year-old woman. A police officer patrolling the Baltimore-Washington Parkway at about 4.50 in the morning found the body of Brenda Denise Woodard lying off the shoulder of the road, not far from Route 202, the Chevrolet exit of the highway. Her body was still warm. Welcome to Unsolved Podcast. I'm your host, Heidi Galore. On Sunday evening, April 25, 1971, 13-year-old Carol Denise Spinks left her home in the 1,000 block of Waller Place Southeast in Washington, D.C. to walk to the nearby 7-Eleven store, about half a mile away. She reached the store at the corner of Wheeler Road and Southern Avenue and purchased TV dinners, bread, and sodas. She left the store but never made it home. Six days later, on May 1st, an 11-year-old boy walking alongside the Anacostia Freeway, about 200 yards south of Suitland Parkway in D.C., spotted her body. An autopsy determined that she had been sexually assaulted and strangled. Months passed. The killer struck again that summer. On Thursday, July 8th, 1971, Darlenia Denise Johnson left her home in the 3900 block of Wheeler Road Southeast in Washington, D.C. at about 10.30 a.m. She was on her way to her job as a counselor at the Oxen Hill Recreation Center. It is unclear if she ever made it to work. Eleven days later, on Monday, July 19th, an electric company lineman found her decomposed body in heavy brush only about 15 feet from the location where the killer left Carol Spinks. Darlinia Johnson's body was too badly decomposed for authorities to determine her cause of death. They were also unable to determine if she had been sexually assaulted. 
Now, only days after Darlinia Johnson disappeared, another child went missing. 14-year-old Angela Denise Barnes left her friend's home at about 11.45 p.m. on July 12th to walk the 10 blocks to her own home in the 4,000 block of Martin Luther King Avenue in southwest D.C. She never reached her home and was reported missing. Her body was found by a motorist in the early morning hours of the next day, July 13th. She had been left along a road near Waldorf, Maryland, about 25 miles from her home, but she had been shot in the head. You will no doubt notice several patterns by this point. Each child had been taken from D.C., and their bodies dumped alongside a busy roadside. Most unusual is that each child so far has had the middle name of Denise. I can also tell you that each victim was African American. The people of the city were still reeling from the riots in 1968, following the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Of the over 750,000 residents of Washington, D.C., more than 70% were African American, and over 60% of the police force at the time was white. Family members of the victims at this point did not feel as though these crimes were getting as much attention from the police and the media as they should have. Fifteen days after Darlinia Johnson went missing, a fourth child disappeared. Ten-year-old Brenda Faye Crockett left her home in the 2200 block of 12th Place Northwest near W Street at about 8 p.m. on Tuesday, July 27, 1971. She was on her way to the grocery store only five blocks from her home. After an hour, her sister became concerned. She stayed home while the rest of her family went out into the neighborhood in search of her. After three hours, the phone rang, and the missing child's sister answered. It was Brenda. Her sister told her that the family was out looking for her. Brenda told her sister that she had been picked up by a white man and that she would be coming home in a cab. She also added that she thought she was in Virginia. She then said bye and hung up. She called again a few minutes later and repeated what she had told her sister to her mother's boyfriend, who had answered the phone this second time. He tried to get her to put the man on the phone to no avail. At one point, Brenda said, Did my mother see me? Her mother's boyfriend responded, How could her mother have seen her if she was in Virginia? He then said he heard heavy footsteps in the background, and the child hurriedly hung up. Police later theorized that she was forced to make these phone calls to her family to give them misleading information. Unfortunately, Brenda was not sent home in a cab as she had hoped. The next day, a hitchhiker traveling along John Hansen Highway found the child's deceased body about a hundred feet from Kenilworth Avenue in Maryland. A rope was still around her neck. She had been sexually assaulted and strangled. Ten-year-old Brenda Faye Crockett's kidnapping and murder was particularly revealing for several reasons. First, the killer took the child to a private home. If it was a public telephone, the family would not have heard heavy footsteps and would have mentioned a vehicle or outside background noise. Two, the family went looking for the child very quickly after she didn't return and while the child was still alive. They were close enough that the killer or the child saw or heard the family searching for her. Police believe the killer was scared and did something completely risky by forcing the child to make those calls to try to convey the information that she was not nearby. And three, the belief was that the killer was likely African-American, and made the child say he was a white male in an attempt to throw searchers off. This is supported by the thought that he was able to operate without suspicion among communities during the daylight hours, and convince children 
and young women to accompany him. For months, all appeared quiet. Each investigation into each victim's death seemed to go nowhere. There was little coverage in the local news. Then on Friday, October 1st, 1971, Nenomoshia or Nino Yates, a 12-year-old girl, walked from her home in the 4900 block of Benning Road Southeast, D.C., to the Safeway grocery store a block away. One report that I found said that she left her home at about 5.30 p.m., another said 7 p.m., but either way, she made it to the store and purchased a bag of sugar. She was on her way home when the killer intercepted her. Her body was found only hours later, just off of Pennsylvania Avenue Southeast, near the D.C.-Maryland line. The bag of sugar and her change from the transaction were found with her body. She had been strangled manually and sexually assaulted. After this, a local city tabloid called the Daily News ran a story and used the name Freeway Phantom to describe the killer in a headline about the latest murder. Police seemed to take notice by this point as well. At this time, at least two agencies were working these cases, separately. The D.C. Metropolitan Police Department and the Prince George's County Police Department in Maryland. A month and a half later, the killer would take another life. The evening of Monday, November 15, 1971. This time, he chose an 18-year-old woman who had just finished attending night classes at Cardozo High School in Washington, D.C., after class, she and a male friend traveled to Ben's Chili Bowl, a popular restaurant on U Street Northwest, near 12th Street. At about 10.25 p.m., she and the same friend took a bus heading to the northeast area of D.C. Her friend last saw her getting off that bus to catch another at 8th and H Streets Northeast to travel to her home in the 2100 block of Maryland Avenue Northeast. She was wearing a black and white checkered skirt, black boots, a black turtleneck sweater, a green ribbon in her hair, and a maroon coat. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. When Brenda Denise Woodard was found deceased, it was determined she had been stabbed six times. Police later determined that the note was dictated by the killer and written by the victim. The FBI was called in by this time because Brenda Woodard's body was found on the parkway, which is federal property. Dozens of detectives and federal agents were assigned to work these cases. They completed extensive searches of the area's mental health facilities. They checked into the employment records at city recreation centers, since, like Darlinia Johnson, Brenda Woodard had worked as a counselor the previous summer at a park in the area. Background checks of every substitute teacher the girls may have had contact with were also completed. The FBI and the task force of agencies working with them reportedly developed more than a hundred suspects, including dozens of local convicted sex offenders. This was before any kind of public registry had been created, but nothing came of any of it. 
I couldn't confirm where this description came from, but I found reports that police believe the killer to be a black male, about five foot seven, and in his late twenties. But right in the middle of their investigation, the entire FBI became distracted by something else. At first it was called the Watergate Caper. Five men, apparently caught in the act of burglarizing and bugging Democratic headquarters in Washington. But the episode grew steadily more sinister. No longer a caper, but the Watergate affair, escalating finally into charges of a high-level campaign of political sabotage and espionage, apparently unparalleled in American history. We'll begin with Daniel Shore and the man who bugged the Watergate. Across the street from Democratic headquarters in the Watergate building, in room 723 of the Howard Johnson Motel, former FBI agent Alfred Baldwin III spent three weeks listening and logging wiretap reports for the Nixon campaign organization. Now, apparently granted immunity from prosecution as the key government witness against those he worked with, an unemployed Baldwin walks near his New Haven beach house, explaining why he believes he did nothing wrong. There were individuals with uh, 20 years' experience in the CIA and several years with the FBI, and uh, I had been contacted through the ex-agent society, and uh, the people around me were White House aides and consultants. And as I say, I believe that we were working for the former attorney general who was, or is, the, or at the time he was in office, the top lawman in the United States, so I couldn't question the legality of what was going on. I just took my orders and did what I was instructed to do. The orders ended early on the morning of June 17th when police arrested five men in the Watergate with bugging equipment and copying cameras. They are Baldwin's boss, James McCord, former FBI agent, former CIA agent, security expert, with his own consulting firm serving Republican clients. Bernard Barker, Cuban-born real estate developer, veteran of the CIA's Bay of Pigs invasion. Eugenio Martinez, real estate salesman for Barker, former CIA agent in Cuba. Virgilio Gonzalez, refugee from Castro, locksmith. Frank Sturgis, soldier of fortune, one-time fighter for Castro, later anti-Castro guerrilla. In May of 1972, a former FBI agent assisted in this scandal. It was all discovered a month later, and suddenly the FBI had a large-scale national investigation that forced them to halt all other activities. They would not return to investigating these murders until 1974. While they were away, however, the killer had struck again. 17-year-old Diane Williams was a senior at Ballou High School in D.C. On Friday, September 5, 1972, she cooked her family dinner then visited her boyfriend's home. She was last seen boarding a bus, wearing jeans and a gold sweater. Hours later, her body was found by a truck driver along I-295, just south of the Maryland-D.C. border. She had been strangled. I've described seven victims, but I can tell you that actually only six of them are connected to the same killer. On March 30th, 1974, two arrests were made for the death of Angela Denise Barnes. If you recall, she had been shot in the head and left along a roadside in Waldorf, Maryland, 25 miles from her home. On July 12, 1971, Tommy B. Simmons and Edward L. Selman, both former D.C. police officers, were arrested 
In July of 1974, Selman was tried and convicted of rape while armed and sodomy. The jury deliberated only two and a half hours before finding him guilty on all charges, which also included kidnapping, the murder of Angela Barnes, and the unlawful possession of a 33 caliber revolver. Simmons was the father of a three-year-old girl. His wife was completely clueless about his activities until the day she was summoned to appear for trial. At the time of his conviction, his wife was expecting their second child. His wife reportedly told media at the time that she knew he had a problem, but did not know how deep of a problem it was. The murder of Angela Barnes came to light during Selman's trial for the rape of another victim who had survived. Selman testified during that trial that on June 28, 1971, almost two weeks before the murder of Angela Barnes, he and Simmons were driving his green Volkswagen when they spotted a woman standing on a street corner. They forced her into the vehicle at gunpoint and drove her to another location. They raped and, quote, otherwise sexually assaulted her in the vehicle before finally releasing her. The two had both left the D.C. Metropolitan Police Department around the same time in 1970. Since then, they had spent a lot of time together, even stealing the gun that they had used during the commission of both crimes. It was determined that Simmons and Selman were not responsible for the other six killings. The fact that Angela Barnes's middle name was similar to three of the other victims was coincidence. Prior to the arrest of Selman and Simmons, one suspect arose in 1972. However, he was never linked to or charged with any of the murders. His name was James Groom, a 33-year-old white male of the 1200 block of North Charles Street in Baltimore. He picked up a 17-year-old girl at a bus stop at the intersection of Lock Raven Boulevard and Belvedere Avenue while she was waiting for a bus at 2.10 in the morning. He had stopped to ask her for directions. While she was speaking with him, the bus passed by. He apologized to her and offered to take her home. She accepted the offer. He instead drove her to a secluded area near Towson and assaulted her. He then drove her to the 500 block of Roland Avenue, let her out, and drove away. As he was driving her to that area, he asked her, have you ever heard of the Baltimore-Washington Expressway Phantom? He then said, well, I'm him. He also told her that he had just returned from Vietnam and was lonely and that nobody understood him. The girl copied his license plate number as he drove away, and he was later identified and arrested. In 1974, as I said, FBI agents who had been sidetracked by the Watergate investigation finally refocused their attention on these killings. With local police, they concentrated on a gang of men who abducted and raped scores of women on the D.C. streets, about the same time the Freeway Phantom slayings were occurring. One member of the gang, known as the Green Vega Rapists, claimed to have participated in the killings of the Phantom victims and implicated others in the gang. Morris J. Warren, 26, was reportedly offered partial immunity, special jailhouse privileges, and even sexual liberties in return for implicating the other suspects. At the time, at least four people were already in jail serving sentences connected with sexual offenses and other crimes. Police at this time believed that the gang was responsible for between 50 to 200 rapes. A report a year later 
bumped that number up to 500 to 1,000 rapes in the D.C. area over a four-year period. Court records and comments to reporters by authorities indicated that they felt the Green Vega rapists were responsible for the killings at the time. But Warren eventually recanted, and no charges were ever filed. Today, investigators do not believe the Vega rapists were responsible for the phantom killings. In the late 1970s, D.C. homicide detective Lloyd Davis developed his own phantom suspect. In March of 1977, a rape suspect by the name of Robert Askins, a 58-year-old man, was arrested and charged with raping a 24-year-old female in his house. Detective Davis questioned him and found that Askins had been charged three times with homicide. He had spent time in St. Elizabeth's Hospital. He had been convicted in the 1938 killing of a prostitute by cyanide poisoning. His sentence had been overturned on a legal technicality concerning the statute of limitations, and he was freed in 1958. When police searched Askins' house in the 1700 block of M Street, Northeast, Washington, D.C., shortly after his arrest in 1977, Detective Davis found the appellate court opinion in his desk drawer. For Detective Davis, a single word leapt from the page. In a footnote, the judges had used the word tantamount. The word in the note found in the coat pocket of phantom victim Brenda Woodard. It was not an ordinary word, as Davis saw it. Later, he would learn that Askins often used that word at the National Science Foundation, where he worked as a computer technician. Detective Davis worked the case for nearly three years. He retrieved evidence from crime labs and shipped it to the FBI for further analysis. For the first time, investigators were able to link five of the six phantom killings. Technicians found the same green synthetic carpet fiber on all but one of the six victims' clothing. Detective Davis obtained a search warrant for Askins' home, and even dug up Askins' backyard. Davis never recovered any physical evidence of the crimes, and Askins was never charged. He was, however, later convicted of kidnapping and raping two women in D.C. in the mid-1970s. Detective Davis kept all his notes, and still has them. In 2005, he suffered a major heart attack. Fearing death before closing this case, he wrote a letter to Askins in prison, asking him to confess. Askins wrote back right away, but denied it. Davis believes he found the killer. Interestingly enough, a new investigative effort between 2004 and 2006 by Detective Trainum and former Canadian police officer Kim Rosmo looked at these crimes from a geographic point of view. They used a computer system that plots all of the crimes and events on a map and tried to determine where the suspect's anchor point might have been. Anchor point meaning either his home or workplace or significant location to him. They spent weeks and developed a geographic profile of the killer's movements. Based on their analysis and investigation, they believed the killer had an anchor point in Congress Heights, Washington, D.C., just south of St. Elizabeth's Hospital. The murders of Carol Spinks, 
Darlinia Johnson, Brenda Crockett, Nina Moshia Yates, Brenda Woodard, and Diane Williams are still unsolved. If you have any information about these six murders or about the Freeway Phantom, you can call the DC Metropolitan Police at their Synchronized Operations Command Center at 202-727-9099 or email them at unsolved.murder at dc.gov. I'll put the links on our website. That is all for this episode. Thank you, patient returning listeners, for holding out this long while I had to put the show on hold for a few months. This show is completely independently produced by me, and I'm doing my best to bring you quality episodes every time. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so in several ways. You can subscribe via your preferred podcast listening app. We're on Stitcher, we're on iTunes, and Google Play Music. You can also grab our RSS feed off of the website. You can submit a review for the show on iTunes. That really helps us out, that gets us noticed, and especially if it's a good review. To get show merchandise and bonus episodes, you can become a patron of the show and donate through Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash unsolvedpodcast. We're on social media, on Twitter, Facebook, and Google+. You can find us at Unsolved Podcast on all of those. And check out my clunky website that I created from scratch at unsolvedpodcast.com. I'll have it updated in the next day or so with new content for this episode. should include some crime story maps and some images from the investigation, as well as links to the sources that I used and the music. You can also subscribe to our newsletter there to be the first to know when the next episode will be coming out, and any other fun news that I have in store for the future. Thank you for listening. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.